I'm Erin Monahan, and this is the Terra Incognita podcast. And today I'm speaking with Prince Shakur, writer, activist, and filmmaker. And yeah, thank you so much for talking with me today. I I'm just like really appreciative that you're taking the time. Yeah, no problem. I, I love podcasts. I'm I'm glad to be in one finally. Yeah. Um, so I stumbled upon your writing through a recently published essay you wrote for Outside Magazine titled A Black Traveler Confronts Racism at a Montana Resort, and it's a really beautiful reflection piece on the nuances of living in Big Sky, Montana, a predominantly white, small resort town in the Rocky Mountains of southern Montana. And I wish I would have come across your work sooner because you have such an extensive publishing history and it just seems like you've been up to a lot in the last year and I'm sure like even prior to this year but um yeah it's awesome thank you thank you how did you so what was it like writing this piece and then was it something that you had been planning on publishing or um well this piece was actually the first um I guess essay or like paid piece of freelancing work that I ever agreed to do but it's taken about a year until it's um until it's been able to be published. But um as for writing it, um it was very therapeutic. Um I mean I I think whoever reads it can kinda get a feel for the fact that I experienced a lot of painful things while I was in Montana. And definitely writing it allowed me to process just how traumatic some of those experiences were and also to really I don't know, let other people understand that like the emotions I felt were real and they deserve to be heard and that's something that I have to take seriously, even if the world around me doesn't necessarily take it seriously all the time. Yeah. You've been writing about these issues in other outlets, like with Teen Vogue and with Into, and um, I just came across um, an, um, an article on Rewire. So is it oh, something yes, that... Yes. <laughs> um so are you like when you're when you're talking about like this need to like express this story and like your thoughts and experiences is it like within the outdoor community specifically that you don't feel like like what is that like what are you getting at when you're like is that like specifically with the outdoor industry that you feel like it hasn't been being discussed enough or talked about or doesn't seem like a community that's as much talking about these issues? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd say racism is everywhere. <laughs> um, right. I, I, I mean, I personally, as as someone who considers myself an activist, maybe since like um, my senior year or junior year of college, um, I got involved in Black Lives Matter and <laughs> I've been a part of a lot of political spaces, a lot of spaces that don't like to be political, and and I've also traveled as well. And I think, for me, um, double consciousness is like a real thing that I think a lot of people of color, a lot of black people experience everywhere. And um, and I think my experiences in Montana just sort of magnified that feeling because I was so isolated, because I was in a predominantly white space, and also in this industry that caters towards people that are more elite, people that have money to stay at resorts or go skiing. And um, and I think that article reflects what's all around us all the time. So I think it's definitely something I'm constantly confronting. Absolutely. Yeah. 
when you so in your article you're talking about growing up in Jamaica and you talked about um exploring the country and can you can you kind of talk about that a little bit and what was your relationship with the outdoors and when you were younger and then maybe how that's changed now um after you moved to the US or just your general relationship with the outdoors or whatever you want to call it <laughs> Mhm yeah um well, my parents were both born in Jamaica, and they immigrated to the U.S. in their teen years, and I was born here. But um, I went to Jamaica for the first time um, when I was five, and I ended up staying there for a year and going to kindergarten. And, um, and I don't know, I, I'd just say that some of my earliest memories are of uh, being at my grandmother's house where there was no cable, and um, she had three VHSs, and all I could really do was play, like, marbles or cards or play with the dogs in the yard. So um, I think from a very young age, Jamaica symbolized to me um, sort of like a connection to my roots in a way that I think is, like, different necessarily from, um, like, the African-American experience because I think most African-Americans are always searching for some kind of sense of their ancestry or background. But for me, being able to go to Jamaica was sort of a more direct connection to, like, my family and this culture that is, like, very, very beautiful. Um, and so, I, I don't know, I, I mean, for me, it, Jamaica symbolizes a lot. It's about my connection with nature. It's about my connection with my culture. It's about my connection with my family, my father, who died when I was very young. So I think um, I have a place that I can always go back to and reconnect with those things when necessary. Um, that's like a good thing for me. It's also, uh, and Jamaica is also a very complicated place. There's a lot of crime. There's a lot of homophobia. I am a gay person. So there's also a lot of things that I have to confront when I'm there as well. Yeah. Um, and when you came to the U.S., like, what, did you notice anything about your experiences with, like, the outdoors that kind of, like, shifted your perceptions or, like, did you notice any differences about how people conceptualize the outdoors here, or what was your relationship to the outdoors once you moved to the U.S.? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'd say that definitely in Jamaica there's a certain way of life. Like, every a lot of people like to be very calm. I, I don't know. It's, I think the culture is just very, very chill, um, as opposed to the U.S., where I think um, – there's definitely like a, I think a very different connection to the outdoors. And, um, I don't know. That's that's why I love Jamaica because I mean I, I'm not someone that goes on hikes really like really participates in like outdoor athletic activities very much. But um, Jamaica gives me the chance to do that in a way that I don't really do that here. And um, and it's kind of like what I mentioned at the beginning of the essay was that um, like the blackness and the, like, African culture and the Rastafarianism in Jamaica is something that I think definitely um, colors how people connect to the outside. Yeah, so you're saying, like, in Jamaica, that's that's something that is, like, a special relationship with the outdoors. Yeah, because, I mean, I mean, Rastafarian culture is so, um, such a big part of Jamaican culture. And, um, and it's, it's just, like, when you go to the beach, um, here you can't really go to the beach and have someone sell you a fish, go to the bush, find the herbs for the fish, cook it, and then serve it to you while you're there. Um, I, I think it's just like the relationship with how people interact with nature is different because of the poverty there, how people 
experience life, like religion, um, and definitely like a very strong um, connection to this very beautiful like landscape that I think Jamaica is. Yeah. What are your what are your experiences with Rastafarian cultural appropriation that's happened with, within white communities, like white people in the U.S.? Like, have you? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you know. Oh my God, that's a that's a big question. Um, well, I mean, for me at least, um, a lot of that relates to like a year ago, I decided to get dreadlocks, and um, and that was something for me that was like a big decision. It was very personal, and I don't know, like I think for me as a black person with dreadlocks from a Jamaican culture, with this like deeper understanding of it, um, I've learned a lot through this process, and it's made me even more proud of my ethnicity and my background and also the pain that that encompasses and how I have to own that as an artist and activist. And I don't know. I I don't know. All I'll say is, like, in the past year, I've traveled a lot and I've gotten a lot of weird questions about my hair, whether here or abroad or... And I don't know. I, I think when people appropriate Rastafarian culture and do it in a way that just completely erases the beauty of it, the struggle behind it, um, it's a problem. And it's a problem on so many levels when any culture is appropriated, especially a marginalized culture. But, um, yeah, I've had people come up to me and ask me if I wash my hair or if I think I'll ever get a job. And all of that is an effect of the fact that people appropriate culture. And, I mean, Rastafarianism is way more than Bob Marley and weed. Right. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I, I'm a climber, so I've, there's just, that's pretty rampant. <laughs> and, I mean, it's, it's everywhere, but it's just like there's, I think um, from, like, my experiences with, like, the outdoor industry, it's not everyone, but there are, it's just a very pervasive sense that, like, politics don't exist in nature. I mean, there are people who don't believe that and that are, like, working towards activists you know, like activism in the outdoors, but it's not in the mainstream media. And um, I've had a hard time, like, living in places where, like, like Big Sky or, like, I was living in Mammoth, California and Bishop, California, and, like, mm-hmm. a lot of the people, a lot of the white people out there don't, like, they don't realize that, like, <laughs> there's problems and issues, huge issues with the things that they're saying and doing. And um, I just, yeah, the Rastafarian um, culture was appropriated in language and yeah. In, and yeah, hair and yeah, um, yeah. When you, so then in your essay you also talked about the u- unique isolation that you felt living in a small town and um, uh, I, and yeah, like these small towns that are like isolated and beautiful and natural big spaces and then you were feeling isolated in another like way not just like isolated as in like in the middle of nowhere ish kind of or whatever mm-hmm. I don't even really like using that phrase but um just being in these like big vast open spaces and then you talked about feeling uniquely isolated so can you talk a little bit about that and working at Big Sky and the racism that you experienced yeah yeah um oh well I don't know. I, I like rereading that that essay. Um, I, I talked to a lot of people about it, and some people are like, "Oh, well, your first summer season in Montana seemed pretty horrible. Like, why'd you go back?" And um, and I think 
one way that I look at it is that, like, I was fresh out of college when I went to Montana for the first time. I wanted to travel. I wanted to meet new people. And I wanted to do it in this really adventurous way. And it took a lot of courage. And I think um, even just, like, the experience of being there the first summer season and being there again, my first summer season, like, I met a lot of people that I felt like I could genuinely connect with. And the work was hard, but I felt like it made sense for me to be there. But um, there were still problems. Like, people would still sort of make homophobic remarks that kind of confused me and didn't really make sense, and I'd have to think on it and be like, oh, that was homophobic. Like, it was very common for me to talk to just a random guy at a bar, just, like, chatting, and a guy would just stop me and say, oh, by the way, I, I'm not gay, so I don't I don't want, I, I hope you're not hitting on me. And it, it would just be completely out of the blue, and I'd be thinking, ah, oh, wait, I, I, didn't even, I don't even think you're attractive. And so, like, things yeah. like that would happen, or, or... Like, um, I mentioned in the article, but my first summer season there, like, that was when a lot of backlash was happening with people that were criticizing the Confederate flag. And I won't even, I can't even tell you how many times I would be at a bar and a random drunk white person would just come up to me and be like, well, what do you think about this Confederate flag stuff? And so I think, like, the isolation is not necessarily not being surrounded by people. It's being surrounded by people that honestly would ask me these things or try to hold conversations in a way that were just completely problematic. Like, the, I, 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 in an earlier draft of the essay, I mentioned how one time I was taking the bus to work in Montana and I ended up chatting with this guy and he invited me to hang out with him in, like, his room later. And we were just chatting and, like, having some whiskey. And he ended up saying something like, oh, well, I just really want to talk to you about this because I went to a really diverse high school but I don't understand affirmative action. And it was like I was literally in this guy's room with him alone, and I was literally sort of trapped and, like, being confronted about why or how he didn't understand affirmative action. Or or another thing that would happen in my first summer season is that, like, I'd be in a room of people and someone would say something problematic and I'd call them out, and all of my white friends would leave the room one by one to smoke a cigarette instead of, like, backing me up or trying to engage in the conversation. So, I mean, those were all things that were microaggressions or very overt. But um, I think leaving Montana and, like, how I mentioned, like, I lived in Seattle, I went to Europe, um, all of that kind of gave me distance. And I, I had a bit of nostalgia about Montana, so I wanted to go back. And when I went back, I think all of that experience away from Montana made me even more aware of, I don't know, how how, how hurt I was by a lot of the things that people said and did, Um I wrote an essay for Medium called um, To White Friends That Disappoint. And I think one point that I made in that that I'll always kind of keep close to my heart is that, like, I I think what people don't realize about racism or homophobia or any sort of oppressive rhetoric or language is that, like, I so often felt humiliated, but I felt humiliated to the point where um, I wanted to hide it. I didn't want to feel what I felt because people were mistreating me. And eventually I had to realize that, in order for me to be a better person for myself and others, I had to stand up for myself. I had to tell people what they were saying and doing was problematic. And, um, and even though it was horrible, like, that was a huge lesson for me, especially as a black person, gay person, activist. Um, I mean, it, it helps me in so many other parts of my life, but it it sucks that I had to be a 20-year-old uh, in Montana dealing with all of this on my own. Yeah, um, yeah, I read I read that essay. It's 
um, it's awesome. I love that essay. I think. I'm like, oh, I'm you read it? Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, it's so good. Yeah, and um, yeah, like I mean, but you like say like sometimes I hate most of the white people around me because their ability to survive with relative peace, to be safe in their skin, is in direct conflict with my love for myself. And mm-hmm. not only is that just like a really beautiful sentence, but yeah, just like that direct like describing it as, like, a direct conflict and, and just the existence of whiteness and, like, the privilege of being white and then being surrounded by these people who don't understand that and don't realize that dynamic and the systemic ways that whiteness functions. And, um, yeah, like, I mean, the, the complicity that you're describing with people going out for a smoke or whatever instead of saying something or talking or... That is, yeah, I've been, it's a huge problem with, yeah, Yeah. people not wanting to be uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, And then the response, so after you wrote this essay, (laughs) it's pretty funny. I I didn't even notice it until I read it a second time or third time or something, but on on the left side of the, on the, the website, there's, like, the link to the response. That the general manager mm-hmm. of the resort responded <laughs> with. Um, oh. I just think it's so funny. I was just like, oh my gosh, like, of course, like, there's just going to be some ridiculous, like, indulgent response, like, of, like, I don't know, like, white guilt mixed with, like, ab- absolution and, like, excuses and. Um, yeah. Yeah. But what was your so did you did you read that like did you see that or did someone tell you about it or anything? Oh. Or? Yeah, um, the editor for this piece um, emailed me after it was published and said, "Oh, did you know Big Sky Resort sent, like wrote an apology?" and uh, and <laughs> I was like, "Oh, I I did it," and I read it and um, I don't know, I honestly laughed because I thought I thought like like I don't know, it's just, it's just like it's literally what every white person says. Yeah. when they're back into a corner and they don't really want to take accountability. Because, I mean, if you look at it this way, like, why would a corporation openly admit to the fact that they didn't screen um, employees who are racist? Like, I mean, I, I didn't mention this in the article, but um, um, one morning I was preparing for work and we basically, like, all kind of prepared together as housekeepers, our carts, and, like, one of the other housekeepers made this weird joke that I didn't really understand until later that was basically transphobic and it was right in front of like my like second level manager and this manager said nothing like nothing and so I think like when corporations respond to things like what I wrote and say like oh we will continue to have a zero tolerance and this is something we take very seriously all I think is what would you have said if I hadn't written this article you wouldn't have said shit so it's right. to me it's it's just all very ingenuine and um I mean if if you wanna make millions of dollars and hire people who are problematic, um, because that's profitable, that's probably what you're gonna do if you're a business. Um but you can't go back and say, like, we take your experiences seriously when my entire essay shows that they didn't. So right. I laughed. I literally laughed at that apology because I thought like, this is full of shit. Like, this yeah. means nothing because it's, I already experienced it. 
I was already crying in a bathroom and that was the day I decided to leave Montana. Like those experiences were real for me and to and try to invalidate them by giving a, a false apology because you want to protect your reputation, like that's, I don't know, it's almost condescending. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's how I read it. <laughs> and I laugh too because then he goes into the fact, he goes into all these things like, He's like he's like acknowledging it, but then he's like backing it up with like all these excuses. So it's like this really messed up like facade of an apology. But the fact he he like it, it says the fact that Montana is a white state is inarguable. The last census showed a population that was ninety percent white. Blah blah second blah, blah. Like it just goes into all these like <laughs> demographical stats. And it's like thank you for yeah. that explanation of the demographics and none of this. Like, you know, it's just a big excuse that says, not surprisingly, none of those states are in the West. Montana's whiteness is best understood as a product of demographics and migration patterns rather than a deliberate choice. (laughs) There's, like, much more going on there. Yeah, I mean, I I was reading it, and I was thinking, okay, well, I guess you just forgot about my apology and wrote a history lesson. Right? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And then, like... I also wanted to talk to you about, in your essay, you mentioned how you were originally inspired by Edward Abbey to go west. Mm-hmm. So um, can you talk about that a little bit? And, like, what were you, what was your introduction into thinking about the west, this idea of the west? Um, how has that changed or not for you? Yeah. Um, I, I um, studied and graduated from Ohio University with a bachelor's degree in English, creative writing. So, I mean, since I was... Routine. Um, oh wait, hold on. There's one. Well. <laughs> hold on. <laughs> one second. It's a beautiful sound. I think it's gone. But um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so basically, um, I went to college. I studied creative writing. Um, I've been obsessed with writing since I was 13. And um, and I think I don't know. I, I got into college and I did kind of what people who consider themselves alternative or, like, counterculture kind of do. I read a lot of Jack Kerouac, and I read a lot of Allen Ginsberg, and I read, um, and I just read a lot of that. And me and my friends would smoke cigarettes and write on typewriters. So I think sort of that typical, like, young romanticism of those works were definitely a part of how I wanted to travel. And then um, a writer friend of mine from um, my junior year told me, hey, I'm going to work this job this summer and I was like, oh, where's the job? And he said, Yellowstone National Park. And I was like, what? So I applied to that job. And um, and on the way there, I read Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey. And I don't know, like, I think the way he describes, like, the desolation within nature, but also how that, like, the savagery of nature is something that, like, humans should appreciate and understand and respect. Um, something about that was, like, very spiritual to me. And so I went out west sort of with this romanticized idea of, like, learning about myself and figuring things out. And um, that summer in Yellowstone definitely was very, I don't know, that, that was probably one of the um, most chaotic summers of my life. And I did learn a lot, and it was scary and great. And I ended up living with someone from Yellowstone in Seattle. So I think I've definitely gotten a lot from my experiences out west. Um, but I also, um, like, as someone who likes to travel, I want to go beyond, like, the United States or the East Coast and the West Coast and 
sort of figure out what the world is all about. And I think that's something that's kind of missing from um, some of the works like Abby or the Beatniks. Like, it's definitely a very white um, generation of writers. It's very sort of culturally appropriative, very sexist. And a lot of those things are things I'm directly against. So I, I think the more I've developed and grown, I've sort of gone beyond, like, that original romanticism because... I have things that I want the world to be, and it doesn't involve a lot of the elements of those works. Um, but I do want to appreciate the world and appreciate it in a spiritual way. So I, I think my relationship with those writers has, has definitely changed, but they still mean a lot to me because they've helped me grow. Yeah. Like, I've been thinking about that a lot, and it's interesting to realize and have a perspective about people that were so influential to you, and then to later realize that they had such issues, or that they were racist, or that they were sexist, and then you're like, what do I do with this? Um, yeah. Like with the whole, like with Harvey Weinstein, all that stuff going on, and people talking about, like, well, what about, do we appreciate his movies? Or like, um, and then, like, I got into Edward Abbey. I was a, I've been a creative writer, too, my whole life, and then I got into a Southwest literature class in college and I was introduced Ooh. to Edward Abbey then and that and I moved out to Moab because of that book. <laughs> and, wow. and then, yeah, and like I was also I was also like writing poetry and I and I was like um I met this professor, English professor who taught me how to write poetry and he was an, he was a Buddhist monk and then I learned how to meditate mm-hmm. and um and so he like was totally um, feeding my like romanticized vision of these these iconic men, like all the people that you just listed, and and then yeah. you know I tried really hard to like then seek out the women beats that were never talked about, and then mm-hmm. there's no people of color that were in the list of reading that I had in those classes, and then nope, <laughs> yeah, no. like, yeah, I mean. I remember, I remember, like, get, being introduced to Jane Cortez in this postmodern mm-hmm. poetry book, and there's, I mean, yeah, but, like, that wasn't, like, the, the narrative, like, it wasn't, like, who, in my head, you put on a pedestal. Like, you put on Allen Ginsberg, yeah. Edward Abbey, like, Jack Kerouac, and I hate Jack Kerouac's books. Like, I don't care. Like, I tried to read them, and I was like, okay, I'm not, like, I'm not. <laughs> like, I just couldn't. <laughs> yeah. <it>. But... <laughs> But I, yeah, so now it's, like, it's so bizarre to, like, grapple with that relationship where it's, it's, like, their work is ahistorical. Like, it's not acknowledging anything that's going on outside of their own, like, fantastical, like, contrived reality that they've created for themselves, I Mm -hmm. feel like, you know? Like, after reading, after looking back and reflecting on Edward Abbey's work, like, he just wanted to focus on the things that he, like, it's, I mean, yeah, sure. Like he was very like proactive about the environment and protecting the environment in these eco-terrorist ways that he describes, but like, he's not discussing the indigenous peoples that were living there forever and like who are still living there and they're, and not giving them any words like at all, like, you know, and it's just so, and, and it's, he's Lexus. And then once my friend pointed that out, I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> what does this mean? Like, what does this mean for me? Like, I'm yeah. a feminist. Like, how do I? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think one thing that makes me think of is that uh, 
I always view it as writing serves many different functions for many different people based on what you need or who you are. And for some people, writing is escapism. And if you're a person of privilege, that's something really deep that you have to, like, confront or I think you should confront, but I think it definitely doesn't happen enough. Yeah. No, it doesn't. I mean, it has ruined. I mean, like, I can't. I don't want to pay attention to these people anymore in the same way that like I wouldn't go and watch I wouldn't go and support any Harvey Weinstein movies and stuff like that it's just like why I mean it's just the these are the ways that like are that these systems are perpetuated like white supremacy and capitalism and like patriarchy it's like this is it like this is the product of that when you have a book that's historical and and creates this this, like, narrative then in young readers' minds that, like, this is the world, like, this is it, this is the this is what we should all do and aspire to, and then you go out there and you have your experiences, and it's like, oh, I'd have this experience if I was a white male, but a cis, yeah. hetero white male, but, like, but if yeah. I was anything else, then, like, I would be probably not feeling awesome all the time. <laughs> and, yeah. But, yeah. 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 So, so what do you what do you read now if you are ever seeking out works for outdoor literature, or do you or yeah? Um, I would say I don't as much anymore because um, I don't know. A lot of my reading right now is very overtly political. Like, I mean, I'm basically always reading about the Black Power movement. So not as much. Cool. Um, outdoor writing at the moment. But, um, I mean, I, I do um, love to read, like, a lot of travel writing. Um, and there are a few websites that I check out. That's, like, very occasional. It's definitely, like, right now I'm definitely reading a lot about the Black Power Movement. Yeah. Um, so, so you, yeah, with travel writing, so, yeah, so you're doing Two Woke Minds, which is a video mm-hmm. blog, like it's a vlog on, is that correct, or... Do you want to? Yeah. Because I'm just yeah. curious about your yeah. thoughts on travel writing culture and the decolonization of. There's a lot of people working towards decolonizing travel writing, so I didn't know if you wanted to like, mm-hmm. put in your two cents about all that. Yeah. Um. I mean, I, Two Oak Minds is definitely. Yeah. Um. Basically, Two Oak Minds is a video series that me and my um, creative partner Eli Hiller. Um. We've been working on it for about a year, and it's basically one part travel vlogging because the vlogging community on YouTube and the Internet is very white-dominated, and um, I think that affects the way that people portray places. Like, I think if you look at traveling from an anti-colonialist construct, like, I think about it in terms of, like, when I would visit Jamaica all the time growing up, I had an aunt that worked at a resort, and I would literally see white people come to Jamaica and never leave this resort. And I'm like, you got to eat some jerk chicken. You're in Jamaica. And so I think <laughs> even on, at, like, a young level, like, I sort of, knew that tourism and industry sort of strips a lot of places of their authenticity. So that's definitely been a part of, like, the way that I view travel and travel vlogging. And, I mean, additionally, as an activist, um, like, around this time last year, I spent a month in Standing Rock, North Dakota. And, I mean, as an organizer, I think a lot of us try to understand that, like, the mainstream media doesn't portray events accurately at all. And so being in Standing Rock and meeting live streamers and people that, run independent media sources. Like, I was really inspired because I saw that, 
like I was experiencing and feeling these things that were so like intense and I was seeing so many like acts of violence and like sometimes I would go to sleep and there'd be helicopters buzzing over the camp from like the Fargo Police Department. And so I think when we think about travel and travel writing and documenting, I don't think it's all about just showing the joy in a lot of these landscapes. Um, I mean, it's about showing what's human and what's scary and it's about intersectionality. And I think travel writing could definitely use a big dose of that. But I think um, we also have to question, like ask the question, like why um, is like writing an industry and how does the idea of making a profit off of what you write, how does that affect the kind of people that gather there and how they tell those stories? So for me, um, Two Wolf Minds is like a very big project of love because it allows me to challenge myself and it also allows me to document like my history and the history of things happening around me. And I think that's beautiful and that's something that people of color um, have been fighting to do for like centuries. And and for me to be able to do that intentionally, um, it's humbling, really. Like, and I think it's necessary. Like, how how could I not love the things that I love and also want to portray them in a conscious and honest and complex way? Because that's like that's what good art is. That's what good writing is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's it's so important what you're doing. Um, and like, what are the struggles that you faced doing the project or when you're traveling? Yeah, um, I mean, I I kind of started it um, last year when I went to the Philippines, and I don't know, there's, like, the initial awkwardness of carrying a camera around. There's the additional awkwardness of knowing that carrying a, carry around, car- carrying a camera around, like, you're automatically perceived as a tourist, which is something I try to fight against in any way that I can, being perceived <laughs> as a tourist. But um, beyond that, um, I'd say the more documentary element of it, um, about a month and a half ago, me and... Eli and I went to St. Louis after the Anthony Lamar Smith verdict, which was um, a not guilty verdict against the officer that killed him. And um, and we um, met up with some of my friends and covered protests. And it was the first time that I would, it was the first time for me being at a protest and actually going up to people and asking to interview them and sort of having to get across with my energy that I wasn't just some journalist that wanted to cover this space, that it was something that was deeply personal to me. So I think being on the other side of um, sort of documenting and being in those spaces, it's been, like, challenging because it kind of, like, goes against my gut as someone who's, like, really into security culture and just, like, a lot of really radical stuff and, like, taking the time to, like, slow down and, like, ask people questions. I think that's what we should be doing anyway, but it's even more beautiful when you can do it and make it, like a, a like a, a project that people can consume and share and learn from. And so I'd say like the main challenges has just been kind of um reshaping my mindset because my mindset has always been writer or activist. And now I can consider like sort of being a host of a video series as a part of that and figuring out how I can do that in the best way for me and what my strengths are. Yeah, that's awesome. Um it's so cool to, like, hear you're, like, just getting out there and, like, doing all this independently, and I think that's really important. Um, that's, I think, how the best media is created, and, yeah. Um, so can you talk about space and what it means 
to you to take up space and like in natural spaces or moving between the city and urban life to the outdoors or like just the idea of like I mean you talked about Sandy Rock a little bit and I'm sure that there was I mean I know that there were like just reading and then hearing from friends um, and like hearing about people going and maybe not taking like taking up space in, in a way that wasn't productive or helpful and then um, I, I think about a lot like taking up space, just being in the what we what people consider the wilderness, or or when mm-hmm. you're at a protest and you're talking to people and yeah, things like that. So what is can you just talk to like this idea of taking up space? Yeah, um, I mean I definitely view it as like how we take up space is dependent upon like, the stories that we've been told and the stories that we tell other people. So for me, um, I was very shy as a kid. I was also, um, like, a little bit more nerdy. I didn't, um, I wasn't athletic, and um, and I definitely was bullied and ridiculed. And through, like, me getting to where I am right now, I definitely had to learn to own my space. And a part of that is, like, owning my identity and my blackness. Um, and I think there's so many different ways that, like, I can take up space and do that in a way that is revolutionary or radical because, I mean, black bodies are killed all the time, so what does it mean to be proud and visible and loud? Um, one example is um, in Standing Rock, I I um, I got a denim jacket and I wrote, fuck white America on it. And for about, like, seven or eight months until I lost it, I would wear this jacket around all the time and it was always so interesting to see how people would react because, like, I, I would literally, like, sometimes I'd walk past restaurants and, like, I could see people, like, eyeing me from inside and, like, people would give me, like, the stank eye and, like, sometimes some people would come up to me and say, like, oh, did you have this jacket before or after Trump um, decided to try to become president? And I'd be like, why does it matter? Like, this is a statement about everything. And so I think um, I definitely, I definitely learned to take up space in a way that, is like political and loud. I, I don't know necessary because I, I think the part of taking up space as a black body is knowing that you will scare people because um, what you have to say is so deeply tied to these like uh, his, histories that people try to hide that people will do anything to shut you up. And um, and I mean another example is like in Standing Rock, there were so many people that showed up and were so problematic. Like I've never seen so many white people with dreadlocks and like. We would, there would be meetings sometimes, and at this one meeting, this white man, like, raised his hand and was, like, talking about how people needed to be nonviolent, which I think is, like, a whole other conversation about, mm-hmm. like, nonviolence versus violence in movements. Mm-hmm. And, then he, and then he said, and I just need to really say this as uh, someone who's been reincarnated as a white man. And, oh. I, I, I was, and I was listening, oh. and I was like, wait, what? And so I, I don't know, for me, like, when people say things like that, it's, like they're trying to take up space in a way that will give them credibility. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely learned in Sending Rock more than like a lot of other places is that like, if you want to be a part of a movement, be prepared to be a part of it in such a way where, I don't know if you've seen the documentary Whose Streets, but I watched it recently. And one of the yeah. main organizers after Ferguson, I think her name was Brianna or I can't remember her name exactly, but um, there's a scene where, like, she's on the highway, and she's getting ready to block traffic, and she says to everyone, she says, if you are here and you're not here to get arrested, you need to leave. And so I think when people decide to be in these spaces and resist and, like, speak truth to power, like, 
you better be there and be there in the way that you are needed. And um, and that's something that I take very seriously, and it's something I try to live every single day. And, I mean, I, I, I know every time I write something, every time I put something out on the Internet, every time I wear a piece of clothing that has, like, a radical message, like, I'm putting myself at risk, but I'm also demanding space that is mine because I'm a human being and I deserve to live. And there, and, and it, I don't know, it's, it's, it's necessary. And if I don't do that, I'm not um, owning what I have, which I think is really, really necessary. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, speaking to, like, that idea that, like, yeah, if you're not here to get arrested or, like, like, why are you here and, like, like what kind of space are you taking up? And, and those comments, like, I'm reincarnated white. Like, that really, like, that's just, like, the really messed up ways that, like, white people will try to rationalize and, and like, try to, like, process their relationship with, like, these power systems and white supremacy and, like, mm-hmm. the the incredible destruction and genocide that's happening and still going on and how they do these like gymnastic mind tricks that like I don't know that's just like the most bizarre that is so bizarre like I was being funny <laughs> white where I am and like just so you know I could have been not white in a past life and maybe yeah, in my next life I'll be black like <laughs> I'm yeah, just like and I was thinking like I was, I was yeah, and I thought, like, I was like, if you were reincarnated white, what did I do in a past life to be born black in this world? Right. <laughs> and I was just, just like, like, what? So bizarre. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, like, and then the comment about, did you have this jacket before or after Trump? <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Like, what, are, yeah. what kind of things and, are and you I'm, seeing? Like, God. Yeah, yeah and, I mean, it, it, if I want to be really, like, real about, like, space, like, I experienced anti-blackness in Standing Rock. Like, I, I remember one day I was wearing that jacket around, and there's, like, a hill there in the camp where everyone goes to use their cell phones because the signal was better there. And I was there, and, like, my friends had been there, but they went away to do something, so I was there by myself. And there are other people there as well. But um, this older indigenous man came up to me, and he said, hey, can you come over here? I need to talk to you for a second. And then he said, you know, like, this entire movement is about prayer, it's about love, and your jacket has a divisive message. So I, we just, like, we've talked about it and we need you to take it off. And I was like, wait, who, who's we? Like, who are you? <laughs> and, yeah. um, and he said, and then he said, oh, well, the elders know about your jacket. And I just looked at him and I said, I'm not taking this off because it's, it's my clothing and I have a choice. Yeah. And I walked away and then he came back five minutes later with five men with him and they all kind of circled around me and they said, we are asking you kindly again, take off your jacket and just know that if you do wear this again, we will have people tracking you in these camps. And it, like that was a moment where I realized like me taking up space in a way that defended my blackness and said something critical about this country and about race, that that was not welcome. So, I mean, if you there's like a complexity to the idea of taking oh, up yeah. space, which is that like for me at least, like everywhere I go, no matter where I am, I always feel that I'm under attack in some way and I have to constantly process that and process it in a way that doesn't make me hard or bitter or close myself off. 
and I mean, it's, it's, it's a big question to think about. And I think, I, mean, I, I don't know, I, I think I try to explore that a lot in my writing. Yeah, and I mean, that also gets at the messiness of activism and building communities in resistance to these oppressive structures and, like, like how do you how do you resolve something like that when you're both experience like you're you're in a setting where like you're resisting these oppressive structures and you like as a black person as a person of color you're like experiencing like these unique ways of oppression that are you know that you've experienced in your life and and then as an indigenous person there are it's just you know there are different oppressions like that are that are like affecting you in, in ways and in, in unique ways so then to have like this conflict of like how are we going to like tackle the, these structures and then how are we going to like what is how are we going to like express ourselves and our messages and how do we do that in a way that's appreciating and honoring each other's ability to do that and not policing each other mm-hmm. but then it's enough yeah. yeah that's really I mean that's been I know that's been like the age-old problem with any resistance movements and you know yeah. within the feminist movement you know like there's all kinds of issues like that too like <laughs> just like yeah it's a really it's been it's really hard to like yeah have you in your activism seen that anymore or like is it like because a lot of things like that like I mean I like yeah, that whole, like, ability to, like, understand, like, where that jacket is coming from, like, where your, where the phrasing, fuck white America, like, where that comes from, like, for people to not be on board with that delivery. I mean, that's, a lot of times people will say to me, I don't like the way that you're approaching this. I don't like the way you said that. So it's kind of like, it's not necessarily, like, tone policing, but it's, like, this kind of policing of, like, how the message is, how you're delivering it, how you're protesting, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, I'd say definitely tone policing because it's like what you said, like, if someone sees that jacket and doesn't understand why I, as a black person in this country, in this world, if they don't understand why I would say that, um, it's kind of like they don't really understand what I'm up against. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know, it's, it's, there's like a knowledge there that's necessary to, I mean, in order to humanize oppressed people, you have to be knowledgeable about what they've been through. And that's like a serious thing. Like I, I read an article recently that described America as having systemic amnesia. And like I, I read that and I thought that there's never been a clearer way that anyone has ever really said that. And um messed up. Messed up. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and I saw on Twitter that you wrote about the labor of being honest despite it being difficult to talk about the issues of racism and microaggressions as a person of color. So can you talk about this a little more, the labor of being honest? Yeah. Um, um, I mean, I'll kind of relate that to, like, the two white friends that disappoint essay I wrote. Like, um, I wrote that in, like, a very raw, sort of confused and upset place. And that was because I realized that for, like, weeks on end, I constantly had these people in my life that were white that would, come to me and ask me questions and they'd generally be wanting to like have a conversation and understand something that wasn't really readily like understandable to them. But I realized that 
I was like giving people more than I was getting back because these were also people that didn't really show up to protests or didn't really talk about their whiteness in ways that show that they're confronting it. And for them to come to me, someone who's like very visible and vocal and at risk as well, um, I don't know, it, 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 I realized how angry I should have been and how angry that I was. And I think there there is a labor to, like, one, just, like, being the person that I am, like, black, queer, uh, like, someone who wants a better world. Like, uh, sometimes it's hard to constantly have to confront people who, like, literally just don't take my humanity seriously. Like, one example is... um. Last year, a 13-year-old boy was killed in Columbus, Ohio, by police. And so me and my friends organized a memorial. And we set up this memorial on the courthouse steps and, like, had banners and zines. And, like, middle schoolers came and asked questions and wanted to learn more. And at one point, this white man came to the memorial and came up to me and said, oh, I just want to, like, say how horrible I think this is. But I have a question for you. And, like, I mean, we all do. We've all been there. When someone uses that butt, you're just like, oh, okay, what is this? Uh, and he was kind of, like, asking me what happened. And I was like, wait, like, why did you come to this memorial and thank me if you didn't know what happened? And so I explained it to him. And when he said, oh, well, I just, I, I just want to be, I don't understand something. So this boy, like, had a gun, had a fake gun, but, like, Osama bin Laden grew up in a bad neighborhood, but we don't excuse the blame for him, so how is this boy different? And I've never had my vision go red so quickly. Like, oh I literally, like, kicked, I, I kicked this guy to the memorial, and I, like, cursed him out, and I was just like, how dare you come to this space for this boy that was killed and try to compare him to Osama bin Laden? So it's, like, wow. moments like that where, like, someone's lack of knowledge literally makes it okay for them to say or do things like that. And right. so, I don't know, that, that, that memorial was me, like, using my labor to do something that I thought was necessary because me and a lot of people I knew were afraid. And so I think labor can come in many different forms. It can be being gentle and explaining things, but it can also be, like, tough love, and it can also be, like, justifiable rage, which is what I felt. <laughs> and so for me, it encompasses all of those things, and I constantly have to process um, like what's necessary and what's giving too much when I'm not getting back what I feel I deserve. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love the way that you described labor and how it comes in many various forms. And I think people definitely take that for granted. And you see this response, um, like your rage in that moment was, it's incredibly valid. And the ways that anyone responds to any situation when they're, um, up against um, an, impre- an oppressive power dynamic with someone or, like, the language they're using or any microaggressions, like, um, that tone policing thing. <laughs> um, that tone policing thing is is huge. I think that people, and then and the microaggression is, like, the understatement of the century. Cause it's, like, it, people, um, if they're not aware and confronting these issues all the time, then they're, they're just like, why are you being so sensitive? Or like, can you can you just be calmer? Like respectability politics, yeah. bullshit like that. Like, why are you getting so angry? That's not a very good way to deliver your message. And you're yeah. gonna lose your yeah. audience. <laughs> and I I get that all the time. 
I'm, I'm not. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Yeah. And it's like when that guy said all that stuff at the memorial and I was like, yeah, look at him. And I was like putting my finger in his face. And he said, well, I'm just trying to have a conversation. Why are you so angry? And right. I mean, it, it, that was exactly him, like reacting in a way that was trying to um, erase my emotion, which was just like, how can you come to this memorial and try to talk trash about this boy? Like, this right. isn't about you. Right. Like the complete ignorance of the effect, like the impact that he's, that his words are having, like in the, it's like a complete lack of awareness of how offensive and yeah, just that's, yeah, how offensive he's being. Um, yeah. So, so I'm curious about your thoughts on, you You spoke about casual racism in the outdoor industry, and I love that phrase because I think people often think of racism as individual acts or, like, individual people who are racist, and we can point to them and say, you're mm-hmm. racist, that's a racist, and but no, like, discussions on how we're perpetuating racism just because of the ways that we were taught and the ways that we've been conditioned as a society um, and how it's systemic. So yeah. we have these campaigns calling for diversity in the outdoors that are really trendy right now. And, um, and it's in, mm-hmm. it's in advertising everywhere, but I see it a lot in the outdoors particularly. And I think, I mean, like there's, it's a hard thing to, to have, like, I mean, like, to have, like, the like what people are reaching for in this word diversity, like, they're not actually getting at. Mm-hmm. I think it's just become, I mean, like, not, maybe there are, like, people that do feel like there are companies or organizations that are legitimately doing it right, and, I, and I'm sure there are. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to these, like, big brand name campaigns, like REI or Nike or things like that, and people are using diversity as an advertising tool like what are your thoughts on that and then what are your thoughts on like like how that like that relationship with like actual systemic change and if those two are in conflict yeah i mean if you're targeting black folks or people of color and you're a corporation because you want to make more money that's not genuine um you're profiting off of uh, creating this diluted idea of what being in the outdoors is. And I mean, I, I mean, I think it relates directly to like a lot of the things I experienced in Montana because um, like the reason I like termed it casual racism is that me being there and being vocal about my respect for myself as a black person was a disruption to the normal, the, the normal like way that people operated there. Like people made racist jokes all the time. It was just the fact that I was there and I wasn't afraid to confront them and that was something that um, they had to be willing to face because I was strong enough to do that. And so, I don't know, I I think there are ways for people of color to reconnect with nature that is totally exempt from, from like, corporations and these um, campaigns because, I mean, in reality, it's, it's like while the outdoors is being stripped and repurposed for the sake of profit. Um, so have black bodies, so have indigenous bodies, so have women. So I think when we choose to reconnect with the environment, it has to be in a way that empowers us. And I think writing about Montana and confronting a lot of those things really like forced me to like reshape what I thought that meant. And I mean, there, there's a complexity 
to like how it's just not some neat thing. It's not as easy as like buying a pair of hiking boots or or going on a camping trip. It's it's like a really like a lifelong struggle to figure out how we relate to what's around us. And I mean, I I like I another example is um I was in the Philippines um like six or seven months ago and I stayed in Ifugao province and I stayed in this native home and I went to the like rice terraces and to sort of see like a completely different part of the world and how people um interacted with their environment, like that gave me so much because I saw that so much was possible and that was something that I could um find hope in. And that, that to me, that feeling is way more than any diversity campaign that a company can really like try to pitch because that like what I felt was real. It wasn't like manufactured to get a desired um effect or to make a profit. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I um that whole relationship with like the outdoors and profit right now has been on my mind because of these campaigns and I have friends who are like invested in these campaigns and they're helping behind the scenes and stuff and I think that that's fine. Like that's okay. Like I mean, getting um bodies that aren't thin, cis, white, hetero people out in the outdoors and getting that representation is awesome and it's important. Um but I also just have this like that what's missing from that conversation and what is maybe missing from people's awareness, like when they're supporting these campaigns and they're excited about them and they're sharing them on social media and going to the events to support these companies, it's like, well, the bottom line, like you have to, there's got to be like an awareness, like the bottom line for these companies is profit and it's not to truly change the ways that these issues are systemic and, that are actually preventing people from, from people of color and women and trans people and and fat people from like actually getting into the outdoors. Like there's no, yeah, like real systemic change happening at the core. If it's all about profit, it just seems. I mean, because they're not they're not having like REI isn't putting on workshops about like let's talk about whiteness or let's talk about racism. Yeah, and, like. Let's talk about like I mean it's the it's kind of the response that like Big Sky general manager Montana dude had to your essay, which was that well yeah that I'm so sorry that that happened to you, but we're not racist and look at what we're like we you know like that's just the way it is. <laughs> sorry, yeah. like nothing, no real like action towards looking at yeah. that. Yeah, and, it, and it, it's yeah, and it's also as real as like if these companies actually cared about diversity or inclusion, would, wouldn't they ask these communities what they need and provide that? And if Big Sky really cared about my experiences, why not email me and start a conversation, which didn't right. happen. So I think, like, the intention um, doesn't really matter if you don't fulfill the deed in a way that actually respects the, the people that you're aiming to like hear out supposedly right yeah like um yeah i just see a lot like when people like the whole idea of like inviting people to the table and then it's like always just like a last minute second like like afterthought to invite people of color or like indigenous people to events and then it's like oh like 
like we didn't think about it or they didn't come to us or whatever. And then it's mm-hmm. like, well, that's like inherently racist and you don't realize that. And like you don't care to like highlight any of the local organizations who are people of color or indigenous. I mean, I'm just talking about like these, these festivals um, in the outdoor industry where you don't see a lot of like organizations <laughs> that, that are representing marginalized voices in any way. And it's a lot of big brand names and, Yet they will tout diversity and inclusion and access and stuff. So it's just, yeah, yeah the idea that, like, yeah, the, the level of awareness that needs to be there for them to realize. I mean, that's what I, I mean, I don't even, it's not even that I think that this is actually going to happen. I think that, like, we are we are in a capitalist system. Like, capitalism functions off of profit. They're not trying. They're just doing whatever it takes to, like, be marketable and, sell money, you know, sell products and yeah. get customers. Doesn't It's, like, not possible to have that system yeah. change in that system. Yeah, um, yeah, because if, if you wanted that change, you would have to question the entire foundation. Right. You'd have to blow it up. Like, you'd have to, like, be like, well, I guess we have to protest ourselves. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no one wants to do that because yeah. we're making money. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like the systematic, there's a, a systematic history of using the lowest common denominator workforce for the lowest possible price and then benefiting from that in our country, which is kind of in line with what we're talking about, capitalism. And mm-hmm. like, um, so in the 1800s, laborers making clothes and the people making money off of them were all rich male white traders. And you mentioned this dynamic with housekeeping positions that you held when living in Montana and you made the connection about your Jamaican grandmother cleaning homes of upper-class white families. So what are your observations mm-hmm. about how this plays out in resort towns and outdoor destinations? Um, I mean, I, I think it's, I think there's like a, there's the reality that like from what I've experienced, a lot of seasonal work usually involves like um, people like coming to the U.S. to work at places like resorts or camps things like that, um, like seasonally, like a lot of the people I worked with in Montana were Filipino or Chinese or Korean. So I think there's that relationship of how workers are moved around and how that benefits like companies. And then there's also the very real thing that I like mentioned, which was that like my, my grandmother literally came to the U.S. in like the 60s and I was able to describe things that I'd experienced that might have been somewhat close to some of the things that she experienced. So how, like, that relationship with, like, the outdoors or with other people or with work, like, that relationship is carried down. Like, when I think about when I graduated college and I worked this horrible job in Seattle that was, like, salary and I thought I would be helping people, but I wasn't, like, one of the things my mother said to me is that, you have to do this job because this is what our people do. Like, we just deal with it and we make it, and that's just the reality. And I said back to my mother, like, immediately I said, I think you deserve more and I deserve more, and I want to fight for that. And so, I don't know, it's, like, even more clear to me because our president is Donald Trump, and, and how for how many decades has he actively exploited poor people and made a profit off of it? And now he's president. So to me, it's like, 
it's so clear that the world that we live in um, does this and it deserves to be confronted. And I think when I think back to like any job I've ever had where I felt mistreated and I started to speak up, it would honestly, one, it would scare the people around me. And two, it kind of, sometimes it kind of get me fired. (laughs) And I, I think like, if you don't even have the ability to like uh, advocate for yourself in the workplace or in the outdoors or in seasonal work, I mean, what does that say about how you relate to the world? What does that say about your voice and whether or not it's actually heard? And so, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like very clear to me. And I'll just say it again. Donald Trump is president and he is one of the most disgusting men I think I've ever um, known of. <laughs> so right. it's like, yeah. it's, 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 to me, it's like very. It's it's just it's it's such a it's such a part, foundational part of what America is like to take people from another continent and to use them as slaves and then centuries later um, have a president who's endorsed by the KKK. Like it's all connected, and I think that's something that people need to take very seriously. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And. That all those connections, like just the larger connections of the of the work that's been like the low income work that's been on the backs of people of color and the, the ways that like the resort towns exploit people of color and um, I saw that in Mammoth, California, and it's I mean it's just like so clear when you start realizing how. I mean, it's just, like, so obvious. Like, we live in a white supremacist settler colonial state, and um, I don't – it's just mind-blowing to me that, like, people in the outdoor industry don't see that and want to say things like nature isn't political. (laughs) Like, they don't want to confront these things and how, like, like, the issues that are at large in our society don't just, like, disappear when you go into, like, the mountains. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, and... Where, where 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 did you work in Mammoth? Did you... Were you there for work, or...? Yeah, I um, I moved out there. I was there... So I lived in Bishop in March. I moved... I've, I'm, like, always in Portland, mostly, so... Um, ah. When I started Terra Incognita, I, I'm a climber, so I have... Um, like, I've done trips living out of my car, and that's been something that I've, that I've done. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm trying to start this company, then and I'm trying to make it, it turn it into a nonprofit this year. And mm-hmm. um, I want to save money to do that. So I was like, oh, I'll just like go and live out in my car and take advantage of that. And so I did that in Bishop in March. And, um, and then it got hot. So then I moved to Mammoth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was working at like, I worked at a restaurant in Bishop, and then I moved to Mammoth and worked at a restaurant there. And then I moved, and, mm. and I, yeah, two different restaurants in Mammoth. And so I just, like, had, yeah, I mean, talk about getting, like, almost getting fired. Like, it's either, like, got it's either gotten to a point where I have to quit or I stay because I need the money, and I just have this very fraught relationship with my managers because of yeah. speaking out. And then you realize that, like, like you speaking out is – like, there's tone policing, there's toxic masculinity, but it's, yeah. And, I mean, living out of my car this last year, it's a huge privilege, and I think that there are issues 
absolutely with like this whole notion of like the dirtbag lifestyle, like being yeah. like anti-society when really like you're just banking in on your on your like white privilege and ability to feel safe and move freely throughout the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very, very, very true. Yeah. Okay. I was just curious. Yeah. Yeah, and now, um, yeah, so now I'm in Portland, and I'm back in Portland for the winter. So, yeah, Terra Incognita is a feminist lens to the outdoor industry, and I saw that you identify as a feminist. So I was, I think that's awesome, and I'm excited to talk to you about what that means to you. Yeah. Um, I don't know. To me, um, I, I've tried to write about it a few times, but it's such a complex thing for me. But I don't know. For me, it's like from a very early age, um, I have known a very close people to me who have been, who are women who have been sexually assaulted. And so I think since that was something I had to confront, even as a child, um, that was something that just like sort of latched on to me and I took so seriously. And I mean, even my freshman year of high school, I had a friend who was a woman and she was dealing with a lot of like mental health um, things and was like in an abusive relationship. And I don't know, some part of me has always, I guess, I've wanted to save people. I've wanted to understand them. And I think that's a part of why I write. Um, but, um, another thing is like I, my biological father died when I was very young and I know he and my mother had a very complex relationship and that's something she's talked to me a lot about, about like trauma and how, I don't know. It's, to me, it's, it's just like a very matter of fact thing. Like I don't, I don't get why like the society we live in has to be patriarchal. Like I think it's totally unnecessary and for me, like, I I love so many women in my life because there, I think I do believe in, like, a divine feminine energy and how that's something that we all have and that's something to be respected and understood. And, um, and especially as, like, a, a gay person, like, the first person I came out to was my best friend, and she was immediately just like, I don't care. So I think, like, I definitely find a lot of safety in, like, feminine spaces and spaces where... Um, I'm with women, and I think that's something that I try to, like, respect, and I try to understand when I'm speaking too much or if I'm taking up space. And um, and I think, like, women live through a lot of trauma, and if I can help relieve that or understand it or or oppose the things that cause it in any way, like, how could I not? Like, to me, feminism, just, it literally just makes sense. Like, if you're not a feminist, like... Your 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 shit. So I don't know. But there's a lot of layers. There's a lot of layers to what I feel, and it's like a very personal thing. And um, and I love calling out dudes on problematic shit that they do. It's just that's fun. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, like that almost like made me cry a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, I once I started looking into feminist thinkers and writers and it's just like this just makes sense like yeah why are you people yeah. <laughs> resistant to this um yeah 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 and, the, and i mean the toxic masculinity like what you're getting at is um that divine feminine and like the fact that like we live like we live in a world where like we're denied the spectrum of gender and we're denied 
the different energies that like we all have, like we all have masculine and feminine mm-hmm. energies and um but our culture teaches men that they should be this version of masculinity that's extremely toxic to themselves and to mm-hmm. other people and um yeah. That's why feminism is so much so much needed. <laughs> yeah. And then I just wanted to I was curious and these are just like a couple of like fun questions, but what if you could correspond with any past environmentalist writer or activist who would it be and why? <laughs> Ooh. Let me think. <laughs> oh. yeah, that's a really hard I question. Mean, I don't think I could answer that. I'm like, wow, that's a hard question, Erin. That's almost like ruthless. <laughs> oh. I don't know. I don't I don't know if I have an answer. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I don't know. I, I'd say like I'd say maybe like an Earth First activist from like back in the day, like I definitely like would love to have a a drink or a dinner with um them and talk about like their experiences. Cause I don't know. I I I I read a lot about Earth First, and I I think the work that they have done is like really like groundbreaking, radical and smart. So I, I, I think that's my answer. That's great. That's a good answer. Yeah. And what's a book that you wish more people would read? Uh, I would say Asada by Asada Shakur. Um, I read that when I was in France last year, and I don't know, I think it kind of relates to, like, feminism. Like, I find that a lot of the books <clears throat> that I love, like, very deeply are usually by black women. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I don't know, she, and she writes about her experiences in such a painful and scary and beautiful and very honest way. Like, when she talks about, like, um, like when she includes the poem Love is Contraband in Hell, and, like, how that relates to, like, the prison system and, like, just her talking about how horribly she was treated. And um, and, and, and I think she, like, humanizes, like, prisons and, like, America's idea of what a criminal is. And I don't know, I, I read that and it, like, it still holds a very, like, strong place in my heart. And I think if more people read it, more people would understand the civil rights movement and the black power movement and feminism and prisons. Like, I think... She explores so much, and it's done in such a human way. And um, and it's also, like, something that I aspire to do as well, which I think is something I try to inject in my writing. So I definitely say that book for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I haven't read her well, work. What's, what's, what's your... Oh, yeah, you, you have to. What, what's, what would your answer be to the question? Oh, my gosh. Um, that's a good question. um i mean recently i've been talking to a lot of white people about racism so i think that i've been recommending to them between the world and me because i think that's just a really great like Mm. accessible like read that just i think would change people's perceptions on things but i i just picked up sister outsider by audrey lord so that is a book that i would highly recommend um, okay. Okay. I haven't yeah. read that one yet. That's been on my list. Yeah. Like I needed to. I wanted to pick it up because I, I've been thinking about her quote: "The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house." And then I was like, I was just like, I had the thought that was like, oh, I should just like go like it's part of an essay. Like I should just like probably read the essay and then read the book. <laughs> so yeah, I just, like, yeah, <laughs> did that. So yeah, I yeah, I've been reading that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
So, yeah, so what are the projects you're working on now? And is there anything, I mean, we covered so much, and I, like, love, I'm so refreshed by this conversation because, <laughs> man, like, everything, I mean, yeah, like, I just don't get to talk about these things in such great detail and nuance and insightfulness that you have. Uh, it's just, it's, like, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Oh, but, um, thank you, yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you want to say to the audience of people that will listen to this <laughs> about your projects and, like, how they can find you and, um, like, just what are what are the outlets? And I can, I'm going to, like, provide links for everyone, too. But. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm working on a few different projects. Two of mine is still something that is continuously ongoing and, um, there are a few um, documentary videos from St. Louis that should be out over the next month. Um, I'm continuing writing, of course. Um, I have a few pieces with Team Vogue coming out. Uh, I have an op-ed that I'm really excited for that's basically titled, If You Voted for Trump, Then You Deserve America. Um, so my writing is definitely kicking, yeah, it's kicking in the high gear. And um, I'm also working on a, a biography slash memoir, and I'm in talks with a literary agent, so I definitely say... If you want to keep up with more of my stuff, you can check out my website, which is prshakur.com. You can find me on Twitter um, under the same handle, prshakur. Um, I love Instagram, so follow me on Instagram. And um, I don't know, I'm I'm really just, like, exploring as many things as I can. I'm applying to a lot of fellowships, trying to kind of find more support um, for the stuff that I'm doing because I did receive a grant from GLAAD recently, and um and I'm also potentially moving to Europe next year. So Wow. You end up in Europe, find me in France. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're incredible. You're like you're only twenty two? Uh it's what twenty three this year, yeah. Okay. Oh my gosh. That's insane. Gosh, like who does <laughs> yeah, you? I'm, I'm, like wow. Seriously, that's yeah, thank awesome. You. Yeah, like, you've done so much already, and, like, your writing is just so incredibly insightful and beautiful and awesome. Like, I just, I love your writing, and I'm so glad to, like, see your work out there in the world, and it's, like, the issues and topics you're bringing up in the way that you are, and you're just very vulnerable, and it's so nice to see it take presence, um, particularly in the outdoor media and on outside, because... That's not something that people normally address. So, yeah, thank you so much for yeah. the work you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I'm so excited to share this conversation. Like, I think people will really enjoy hearing your thoughts and get a lot out of it. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Like, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for reaching out to me.